Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Gemma Newman, author of Get Well, Stay Well. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here today. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. There's so much for us to get into. And of course, you've written your book. It is out now. Congratulations. Before we dive into all of my book questions, Dr. Gemma, the first thing I want to talk to you about, it's been in my mind all week, is about you being a doctor, your profession, I suppose, in the modern world in 2023, what it really looks like the day in, the day out, how it's changed, if it's changed. So yeah, I guess for myself and for the listeners, could you maybe give us a bit of a snapshot as to what it's really like being a GP, a practicing GP in the modern world of wellness? It's, it's been a, it has been a shift. I've been a doctor for 20 years. And in that time, the way that I have practiced has changed. Um, Things have become a lot more digital. Um, I would say that my workload has increased by upwards of 50%. My pay incidentally has not increased in the last 15 years. And there are less doctors around uh, with more pressures on those who remain. So I have a lot of colleagues who are feeling really quite burnt out. Um, A lot of colleagues that are moving away, a lot of colleagues that are changing careers. And interestingly, young medics who've done their medical degrees, a larger proportion of them leave Uh, the NHS and leave medicine in general for other careers far more than used to to happen 20 years ago. So I'm seeing really big shifts actually in in sort of GPs in general and, and how they cope with the work, but also on a personal level, I still love the job and I really enjoy being a GP. And I see lots of frail elderly people. I see people who are dying. I see people who have just given birth. I see people who are babies. Uh, I see every aspect of of uh, the human condition from cradle to grave. Mm. And I find that really stimulating. Um, I love being able to connect with families over a long time. And I really enjoy um, helping my patients, essentially. Mm. Uh, it's what I love to do. So it has changed. It is challenging. Um, but I still feel very hopeful about people coming into this career because there's nothing like it. Um, I find it a really special thing to do. It's a privilege. Wow. Yeah, I can only imagine, actually, the challenges. I only have two friends who are GPs, both of them uh, a little older than yourself and have been uh, working as GPs for a very long time. And I can only imagine, actually, I can't actually, the challenges and the changes, especially post-pandemic and the pressure and the workload and, as you say, it not being matched with the pay and, and all of these things. I think something I wanted to ask you about as well is that I think, if I think about myself anecdotally, I think the only time I would call the GP is when it's for the kids. So if I think back to when my son was a baby, you mentioned then seeing babies, I probably went to the GP more. And obviously I have some out now my son is 12 and I also have stepchildren that are nine and five. So three kids. So I feel like for myself, 
and I think this is also shared amongst some of my peers, they might feel like a bit of a nervousness to go to their GP or they might feel like actually I'm not chronic I'm not you know actually it's not that bad maybe I don't need to waste their time they're really busy I think for myself I've probably been to the GP once in the last few years and the appointment you know it's very short isn't it you only have a very small amount of time to see them and I think the appointment before me ran over so I was literally looking at the clock and thinking I've got three minutes with this doctor and you might feel as though not only do you not want to waste their time but they might not take the thing seriously that you're talking to them about because in front of them you know they've got this young fit healthy person and I think a lot of people now in my peer group might just go to TikTok or Instagram or YouTube or something Google and try to just I suppose like solve their own issues or be their own doctor and I don't know if this is a helpful thing and I'm hoping you're going to tell us um yeah do you find that do you feel like there's a kind of bracket in the middle of people who maybe aren't coming to see the GP because they're just trying to find out information online now yeah that's a really interesting point and I'd say the answer is nuanced because it depends um I see a lot more young people now than I used to that are living with chronic pain conditions and chronic health conditions autoimmune conditions uh, and uh, post-COVID syndrome, chronic fatigue, uh, fibromyalgia. I, I, I'm generally seeing more of all of that stuff than I used to uh, in people who are coming to me, which I think is an interesting observation and, uh, and increasing anxiety and depression as well. Mm. And so the first thing you said, I mean, I would never think someone was wasting my time. So Adrian, if you go to the doctor, they won't be thinking that you're wasting their time and they'll never do that. Um, but also I think um, we will always give people, at least I aim to give people the time that they really need. So I do often overrun, but you know, that's okay. I'll still give you your 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is helpful when people seek out um, ways to improve their health by themselves. It it is helpful because um, there's so much education online. There's so much that you can do to help yourself before you get unwell. And it's partly why I wrote the book. I want people to have to see me less mm -hmm. because they're already doing a lot of the things that will help them to ward off some of the largest causes of chronic disease and disability. So um, it can be helpful. It's just important to be mindful of what sources that you're using because there's an awful lot of influencers online that share um, personal anecdotes uh, and not much else or who are trying to sell you things uh, that they have a financial interest in and there's a lot of misinformation online as well it's interesting that most people of a certain age uh, bracket get their health information on Instagram and you think wow that's fascinating because there are so many health nutrition and disease uh, bodies and royal colleges that spend um, hours, days, weeks and months meticulously going through the research for and against various things that people don't even read and yet they'll 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 be on Instagram naturally because that's where a lot of people like to spend their time and they'll seek out health information from there which will not always be reliable. So I think it's a real mixed bag to be honest. Um, I feel like it's important for healthcare professionals to have a presence on social media so that there is something that people can share and, and get evidence-based and nuanced science communication. Um, but sometimes I do feel as though I'm wading against a very strong current in the opposite direction. So yeah, it's about yes. trying to weave our way through. Yeah, yeah, and there is that nuance. And, and of course, there's healthcare professionals like yourself and like many others online as well on those places, on TikTok, on Instagram, sharing that valuable information. And I suppose meeting people where they're at because if their attention is there if they're scrolling through the feed when they're you know 
I don't know, waiting for the train or sitting on the sofa, then actually, yeah, meeting people when they're where they're at and reaching them, I think is is has been really, really powerful. Um, and I guess my last point on this before we move on is around, I guess, where the future and like where it goes next. So I'm very, very interested in future thinking and trend forecasting, you know, work in, as I said, in startups with innovation. And there's a lot, you know, we see a lot of people in health and well-being startups who really want to help people to live healthier lives they want to help them to you know be more active to to sleep better to optimize the nutrition there's a lot of you know science and there's a lot of new wearables and technology and people talking about oh ai is here and now it's going to change everything but then if i think to like i said at the start if i needed to make an appointment with my gp i might still pick up the phone i might still be on hold listening to that music i have to call at 8 30 to get the appointment i might have to go in and get handed a clipboard with a piece of paper and you know tick some boxes and it feels as though where we're being told that innovation and ai is taking over everything um, and I'm thinking in the real world, not on LinkedIn, not in, you know, a startup hub in Silicon Valley, but in the real world, is that innovation happening? Would that be helpful for you? Are you seeing that actually, yes, somebody coming in with a health wearable and giving you their data and showing you on an app? Is that useful and helpful? Where do we need to go to get, I suppose, the healthcare system to kind of catch up? It is helpful and I'm fascinated to see what technology is going to bring to healthcare. I had a patient uh, just a couple of weeks ago who was able to diagnose his own atrial fibrillation because he was using a wearable and was able to see that his atria were not pumping the way they should. Um, And, you know, obviously that's something that he would never have known unless I'd listened, you know, checked his pulse and listened to his heart. So, I think there's definitely ways in which wearables can be extremely useful. Um, I don't know how that's going to be integrated into the um, behemoth that is the NHS, but I hope that um, there are innovations taking place. I know that um, there are certain um, doctors and other innovators uh, in NHS planning and innovation that are looking at ways to integrate that. And then in terms of my day to day life, there's certainly a lot of computer automation that is happening more. Um, Records are all going digital at the moment. Digital prescriptions sent straight to pharmacies, which is, you know, it's very helpful. What yeah. uh, saves on paper as well. Being able to send a prescription anywhere in the country for a patient if they're on holiday yeah. is really helpful. So, I mean, there are ways in which technology is helping us. But also I find myself writing far more notes than I ever used to because you have to document everything, make sure that you are able to prove um, the thought processes behind your management plans. And I remember when I first started working as a doctor, I, I didn't really have to write a great deal just you know the basics of what I uh, needed to remember for when the patient came back but now I write an awful lot more which is a good thing because you have to be able to show um, the way you're thinking about a patient and their diagnosis and the management plan and so on but I do find myself spending an awful lot more time looking at a computer screen than I want to be when rather than looking into my eye the eyes of my patients yeah gosh again it's that balance isn't it and I'm not gonna suggest that it's an easy thing for whoever is gonna of course take on something as you said as as huge and as wonderful as the NHS and and how many people you know that it has to help and to kind of say okay innovation let's I'm sure it is going to be slow and steady but hopefully it's gonna um, yeah have a positive outcome for people like yourselves for healthcare professionals and also for us patients as well all right so let's dive into the book oh yes. so many questions where to start get well stay well i think i've done lots of episodes now on this show i've done five years of power hour so i've done some episodes where i might have focused <clears throat> 
So I've done some episodes where I might have focused specifically on sleep or on exercise or on alcohol. Um, and so I'm always mindful of that when I read a new book like yours. And so as I was going through the book straight away, as I was, I can say I was pleasantly surprised even in the introduction straight away to see so much about psychology, so much about habits, so much about interpersonal relationships about love about self-compassion and so to be honest for the focus of this conversation because we if we talked about the whole book I'm sure we'd need three power hours but for the focus <laughs> of today that's where I really want to to go so can you tell us if someone yeah I suppose is thinking okay Dr Gemma she's a GP she's written a book do you think that they would they be surprised to see so much about psychology and behavior and habits and why is that so important why did you want to I guess have so much of that in the book you know, I think people will be quite surprised because when I uh, talk about uh, medicine and nutrition on online, it's mostly with the lens of nutrition. Um, my my handle on social media for a long time has been Plant Power Doctor. My first book was called The Plant Power Doctor. And so people do expect that from me. And I think a lot of people have been quite surprised uh, by my focus on psychology. But I've always been really fascinated by the the way that the brain works and how my patients are able to create and sustain changes in their lives that are beneficial for them. And time and again, it has become increasingly apparent that the way that we think and the way that we feel is in control of our ability to make long-term healthy choices. And that sounds very um, obvious, but it's not something that's often focused on in lifestyle discussions uh, and not really focused on by a lot of doctors. Um, And so I wanted to create a framework which was easy for people to understand that would encompass a lot of the reasons why we fail to make change and what we can do about that Um, because our thoughts and our emotions can keep us stuck Mm. because they're in charge of what we do and what we think and what we feel and if we're able to have an increased awareness of that then it means that we can fly we can really start to understand well well, what are my blocks and how can I sort of live the best life for me Um, and so the acronym GLOVES is what I created to help people understand the six healing health habits uh, that are free or well, nominally, uh, uh, well, you have to maybe buy food because everybody has to buy food to eat. But apart from that, everything in there is completely free. And GLOVES stands for gratitude, love, outside, veggies, exercise and sleep. And as you've rightly said, you know, you focused entirely on sleep before. Lots of focus on exercise, lots of focus on nutrition, I'm sure. So GLO gratitude, love and outside are areas that are a bit more unique. Mm. And specifically, if we start with the G for gratitude, I want to make it abundantly clear that this isn't just about putting on rose tinted glasses and trying to ignore your problems. It's actually about integrating how you feel in a number of different ways. And that includes integrating grief um, because we will all suffer. And I think this is something, again, people tend to ignore because most of us don't have to think about death and disability in our uh, years where we're supposed to be flourishing. But we will all experience death, disability and uh, suffering and hardship at one stage or another. And being able to prepare ourselves emotionally for the things that we will inevitably experience as part of the human condition, I think is absolutely crucial to being able to navigate it in the most healthy way. So that's what the G is primarily focused on. Um, And there's a lot of research to show that our ability to find the good 
in what we are experiencing can actually help us not just when everything's going great, but also when we're living with huge challenges. There was an interesting study on people who were living with chronic health conditions and chronic pain conditions who were able to start doing something called gratitude journaling, uh, where they would write down things that they felt grateful for that day, despite all the challenges that they faced. And it was fascinating that about 16% of the participants in that study actually felt reduced pain perception uh, as a result of doing the gratitude journaling, um, which people can sometimes feel quite surprised by. Mm. But is is really important because pain and pleasure come from the same place in the brain. Um, and sometimes um, our body gives a signal before we can work out the emotion. And it can help us to process that if we're starting to write things down. Wow. Yeah, it's really powerful when you hear those kind of stats, isn't it? Because as you said, sometimes I think those, something like gratitude can kind of be put over in this box of, you know, how we feel and our emotions. And it kind of can seem like this, uh, not always in the same realm as the science and the data. But actually, I think when you have those kind of studies, it's really powerful to kind of, for people that maybe roll their eyes or kind of don't feel that they're going to get a benefit from doing a practice like gratitude, which we know is, you know, I feel like, again speaking anecdotally my own personal experience it's something that when I've I've heard about it time and time and time again but when I've really focused on it and I've taken a pen to paper and I've actually sat down with prompts and written about it it's it changes everything it really does like you said you feel as though it changes you on a cellular level you know it changes not just your mindset but actually your your body you're so right and I love hearing you say that because This is something that other people have told me. You know, you hear certain things over and again. You think, yeah, yeah, I get that's probably helpful, but you don't necessarily do it. I actually spoke to someone else earlier this morning who reached out to me and told me that as a health coach, she had read a lot of the stuff in the book, but she decided to actually do some of the things that were new to her. And she did the meaning maker exercise and she also did the tie cutting exercise, which I can go into if you want to. And she said for her, the most incredible thing was that when she read about the tie cutting exercise, she thought, well, um, okay, that's interesting. Will it actually make a difference? But she did it. Mm. And in the process of doing it, she said that she felt everything had changed and it was extremely powerful in ways that she hadn't actually anticipated at all. So can you explain Gemma for the listeners what the tie cutting exercise is? Yes, I can. And there's actually a, a table in the back of the book, which is quite helpful because it goes through all the practical tips people can can actually take away and do. Um, I'm going to go to the section of the book because I want to make sure that I say it exactly as it's written mm-hmm. and as I wrote it. But essentially what it does is it's a way of practicing something called non-attachment, which Buddha often talked about in Buddhism, which is quite interesting. Um, and the, the concept is that, you know, you can appreciate and value all the things in your life, but you don't necessarily want to put your whole identity around them Uh, and the same could be true of negative things you know you can have an awareness and a cognizance of the things that have really challenged you in life or the people that you felt resentment towards but you don't have to hold on to those things so what I've written here is a simple uh, prompt and I'll explain it here Um, the aim is to compassionately cut the emotional ties that you have with someone uh, to ease the process of moving forwards and that doesn't have to be that you cut someone out of your life Um, And it doesn't have to be that someone no longer is in your life, but it allows you to actually just feel a lot more emotional freedom around the relationship. Um, And 
it's most useful when you're thinking about someone with negativity or perhaps romantically preoccupied with someone that doesn't feel the same way. Um, but it can also be helpful when you're in contact with someone perhaps with whom you have shared children or a work colleague that you have to stay in touch with that you don't necessarily get on with. But also in a marriage, believe it or not, or even with your parents or your own children, having the space to actually cut some of the ties that you felt negatively impact you in that relationship can be incredibly healing. And all you have to do, I mean, there's various ways that you can do it, but I chose to create a simple statement that you can say out loud with compassion as you visualize the person that you're thinking about. And all you have to do is say, whatever is yours, I return to you. Whatever is mine, I return to me. I release you with love. And as you're visualizing that, um, you try to keep the emotion of peace and joy in your heart. And it's really surprisingly effective because it can help you to um, create new ways to act and be around people that you want to remain in your life with and people that you love. But it can also be a wonderful and healing way to let go of resentments that you have towards people that you don't necessarily have in your life anymore. So it's it's useful for both. Wow, I love this kind of thing, Gemma, really. I really love this kind of thing. And I love it even more when I hear it from a healthcare professional and a doctor because, you know, people have this bias, right? They have a bias, right, maybe rightly so, towards healthcare professionals and doctors. And I feel like you don't often hear hear them talk about these kind of tools and techniques and things as seriously as they might you know prescribe a medication and I think when you were talking about that it was making me think I've got a question for you here does the set could you use that same tie cutting exercise you know the same framework the same principle and the same okay I suppose approach not necessarily for a person but for an experience for a label for a time in your life because I think when I've spoken to people before about feeling stuck with something they might think well they've always been told their whole lives maybe by their parents maybe by friends or teachers they've always been told that they're this kind of person so maybe they've always been told that they're uh, I don't know that they're lazy or they've always been told that you talk too much or they've always been told insert whatever the label is and maybe in the past that label was true and maybe in the past that experience was true or you've had a difficult experience I feel like writing that experience down or that label down and then cutting that tie like you said having going through that exercise I think could be so freeing and powerful for people to say that was true then but it is no longer true now because we can change that and cut away from it and I think I'm going to do that myself Yes, Adrian, absolutely, 100%. And, you know, when I talk about Buddha uh, having reportedly said that the root of all suffering is attachment, it doesn't have to be to a person. It could be to an identity, an existing thought pattern, something that we've been told um, about ourselves, something that we believe about ourselves. And, you know, I like to think about it in terms of the seasons, you know, like the seasons come and go, there's also a time to let go of certain ways of acting and certain ways of reacting. And you can use this exercise for any number of things like that. Mm -hmm. And yes, it can be applied to belief systems. It can be applied to um, situations that you can't forget, people, anything that you like. Yeah. It's a really, really helpful tool. Yeah, no, I think it's really great. So I really hope people are gonna give that one a try. I hope so. Yeah, so, okay, next thing. So we've mentioned gratitude, love and outside. We're gonna talk about those. So love and Particularly you and you hear love, people might think about love and relationships, they might think about their partner, their children, their friends, but they might overlook 
one important relationship, which is the relationship they have with themselves. And I think self-love and self-compassion are words that I think have become diluted because we have heard and seen them so many times. Self-love this, self-love that, love yourself. And it's so ironic, isn't it, that women, I think for the last maybe decade have been told to love yourself, love yourself, love yourself. But actually we're still being told to, you know, be different, be better, improve and be perfect. So there's a conflict there. And I think for someone like me, and I'm sure some listeners of the show can probably relate to this. If you've been, I guess I've kind of grown up with an attitude and a mindset that was about, you know, achievement and go, 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 and maybe defined in in a lot of ways by achieving and striving and being ambitious and motivated. And this idea that self-compassion was actually kind of, you know, excuses, letting yourself off the hook. And actually, if you started to give in to that self-compassionate voice, you would do less, you would achieve less. And this idea that, for example, when people, I've heard people talk about just from a physical training perspective, okay, mm-hmm. you know, berating yourself into doing things isn't good. But then I sometimes challenge and think, well, if I didn't do that, for example, with running outside right now in January, it's freezing. I do not want to go, but I force myself to lace up my shoes, get out the door because I know, A, I'm a runner. I need to run. It's good for my mental health. It's good for my physical health. I know that when I come back, I'm going to be like, oh, I'm glad I did the run. But I'll be honest, self-compassion sometimes for me is like, yeah, forget it. Just get your shoes on and go. Because otherwise I wouldn't run until April because it's too cold. (laughs) So yeah, Gemma, tell me where I'm getting it wrong, where I'm getting it right. (laughs) Self-compassion. I know it's not excuses. I know it's not, you know, letting yourself off the hook. I know that. But yeah, for people like myself who struggle with it, help us. How can we get over that hurdle? It can be really scary to find a reason to do something that is different from the reason that you used to have. And I think from what you're saying, I hear that your previous reason was that self-talk saying, come on, Adrian, sort yourself out, push yourself to do this, you've got to do this, Um, which is fine. Um, as long as it's done, you know, with a kind voice, <laughs> you don't have to do it. Sergeant Major <laughs> myself. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Sergeant Major yourself. But you've actually also touched on something else that's crucial to the love chapter in my book. And that is your identity and your values. Um, because you said, I am a runner. And so you have recognised that you have an identity that you have created around being a runner. And that ultimately is more important to you than the excuses that one part of your brain will come up with for not doing the running. It's January, it's cold. Yes, (laughs) yes. So, I mean, you could argue that in fact you are being self-compassionate because you are allowing yourself to fulfill your identity. I like that, okay. Okay, this is good because often, yeah, I do kind of see them as being discussed in this binary way that says, oh, self-compassion means it is cold, Adrienne. It is January. Don't go for a run. You know, just stay in the warm. You know, pull your duvet, have a lion. And actually, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I'm like, no, self-compassion is going out. Self-compassion is doing the challenging thing. Self-compassion and kindness to myself and my identity and my future self is doing the things that I think are going to make me feel good and that typically have made me feel good in the past. I've kind of got the proof there that says, okay, running's been working for you for over a decade. As I say, it's just as much for my mental health as it is my physical health and it's my solitude it's my release it's my you know I love it so I'm kind of thinking yeah actually it's great that you said that because it's being self-compassionate to myself my identity and, and as a runner not not kind of just bring yourself out the door um, exactly 
exactly. And then that's something I think that it's really helpful to be cognizant of when you're making these decisions. Because if you understand what your values are and what your chosen identity is, it's actually a great self-kindness to act in a way that's consistent with those things. Mm. Yes, and I think that could be helpful for people at this time of the year. As we know, let's be honest, lots of people are trying as much as they can to maybe make some health and lifestyle changes around their diet. So they might be, for example, um, trying to go plant-based if they're doing, you know, veganuary. They might be going alcohol-free if they're doing dry January. They might be doing both. They might be changing everything. Some people do that. Um, and I think that actually that's an important piece there, isn't it? Because again, if self-compassion if you're viewing it through that lens of this I'm doing this because I want to do it because it's going to hopefully have positive outcomes for me then it's not a punishment because I think you know I heard someone the other day joking about it and saying actually dry January she was like actually taking away something that brings me joy which is a glass of wine at the end of the day where does it cross the line between you know okay I'm doing this thing for a health outcome but actually it's having a negative impact on my enjoyment and my emotional well-being because I feel like I'm missing out and trying to find that balance between you know actually yeah being compassionate to what she wants to do but actually how she feels in the moment and I think a lot of people especially by this point in the month let's be honest the first week or two everyone's wearing to go they've got they're motivated week three people go oh you know what forget it you know (laughs) they give up so yeah if someone's in that feeling right now of like actually now it's getting really hard it's getting really boring I do want to have a glass of wine you know do you think that this self-compassion piece can actually help them to stay on track I do and I talk about that in the plan at the back of the book which is a lot more practical because you could write all this stuff and someone could read all this stuff and think yeah that sounds great and then they put the book down and they put it on the shelf and they don't think about it again when you are aiming to be more aware of your values and your identity it will definitely help you to stick with something that you have decided that you want to do for yourself Mm -hmm. and when it comes to something like dry January First up, I've always thought it's odd that it's called dry January because it makes it sound like when you, like what is February? Wet February? I just, you know, it just seems so strange to me that it's called that. But I think I would ask myself, you know, what is it about the wine that she really likes? Uh, What feeling does it give her? And who is she with when she has it? How does it help her relax? Are there other ways that she can relax? Uh, And what you know, what is it about that drink or or is it is it simply the ritual of it? It's like, what is it? It's like when people smoke, for example, you could say to yourself, well, you know, I just love my cigarettes, so it's self-compassionate just to keep smoking. But we know that obviously there's hundreds of studies now showing the uh, deleterious effects of smoking. So I think it's about understanding, well, well, how does this habit fit into my lifestyle? And is it something that I could continue to do with retaining my health for the next 20 30 40 50 years and it's it's a tough one but I think ultimately we have to come to an understanding of what the habit gives us so for someone that's a smoker for example they will have a smoking break at work which gives them just five minutes to themselves or they will have um, a deep inhalation which is a breathwork practice um, that they're doing with their cigarette. Um, Or they will have a, um, you know, the physical hit of the nicotine, uh, which will calm and relax them. So, you know, there's a number of ways in which they're getting something from the cigarette that they, you know, that they enjoy. But obviously in the long term, it can increase risk of all sorts of health problems. So... The same with alcohol, if I'm honest with you. I also, you know, I'm not someone that's completely teetotal. I I do drink alcohol, but I have a a very keen awareness that even one sip will cause acetaldehyde to be produced in my body. Um, As soon as it touches my tongue, which is a carcinogenic compound, 
how much of this do I actually want to include as a health habit? You know, mm. if I did this every night to unwind and relax, that's going to be a problem for me. And so, you know, I need to understand, well, what is it about my identity and my values that helps me really focus on what my relationship with alcohol is doing for me or what my relationship with smoking is doing for me or what my relationship with food is doing for me? Um, and I hope that people will reflect on that when they read the book, because mm it does provide tools for you to do that in a way that is ultimately helpful. Yeah, well, I'm sure they will, because as you said, there's so many tools, so many useful frameworks, and just thinking about it, as I say, in this fresh and new way, which is really open-minded and embraces this really holistic approach. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So let's talk about outside. So why was outside the next one that you included? I think, you know, it kind of goes without saying, doesn't it, that in the modern world, we are spending more and more time indoors. We're sequestering more. We're in our homes more. We might be working from home more, traveling in vehicles. I feel like the whole idea of being outside for many people has to be an intentional action to like, we're going out for a walk or we're taking the kids to the park or going out for a run. I don't think, unless maybe people that live in cities and commute a lot more by walking or cycling, I think we are spending a lot more time, aren't we, doors we are and it's a, it's a strange thing isn't it because we weren't really designed for this but we we make our lives so comfortable and in in doing that we do uh, miss out on some of the beautiful things that being in nature can provide for us because we are part of nature. Again, it's easy for us to forget when we're tied to our tech and we're on socials and we're doing uh, emails and laptops and everything else, getting into cars with air conditioning and um, barely moving. You know, I think it's, it's not just the physical benefits of moving your body, but it's actually about... Um, being able to see, smell and feel nature around us. And I talk a lot about the science of the so-called blue mind, uh, forest bathing, grounding, um, being able to see nature. There's some fascinating studies on um, the effect on our well-being, even just um, looking at water, looking at fractals, looking at that Fibonacci sequence in nature, these recurring patterns and how they can affect our parasympathetic nervous system. Mm. Um, the natural organic compounds produced primarily by evergreen trees that help to support our immune function, help us to create more natural killer cells that will help us to fight infection. Um, uh, yeah, there's just myriad ways. And I have a patient that really brought this home to me because his wife had encouraged him to book an appointment with me after he had opened up his computer one morning, checked his to-do list and the emails he had to respond to and the work meetings he had to do. And he literally fell to the floor on his knees and began sobbing. And she said, you need to see the doctor. Mm. And when we talked it through, it became abundantly clear, especially in lockdown at the time, that he was literally not leaving the house. He would go straight from bed to his office to his you know, work online uh, and he wouldn't see the outside world at all. And it, something straightforward, he literally just, uh, I told him, well, let's just start off really basic. Just go outside, put your feet on the ground each morning and look at the sky. 
That's all you need to do. It will take you less than 30 seconds. And we, that's where we started. Yeah. And he did that and he felt better. Um, there's some great science to show that looking at nature scenes is also very calming to the nervous system. Yeah. So having a scene of nature on his computer, on his monitor, yeah. was another way that he actually began to feel a lot better. He was able to then put some boundaries in place for his work-life balance. He was able to put a not-in-office email in place and things that he didn't feel able to do before he was able to bring more of into his life and it was basically a little bit like a nature prescription because he decided after those things helped him so much that he would purposely make sure that he gave himself a lunch break to mindfully eat and then go for a walk before he went back to his computer and his meetings and all his tasks. And again, it was another thing that just really elevated his day, elevated his health, and it didn't require medication. It didn't require any kind of great epiphany. It just required connecting with the things that his body needed at that time. Wow, that's really powerful. I love that nature prescription. That is so powerful. And, you know, again, people might think, well, you know, just going outside, just looking, but you think about taking that away. What you described before just sounded like a prison. You know, when people are put in prison and self and solitary confinement, and then, and even then they go outside for one hour a day. Even prisoners will be taken outside for one hour a day. Vitamin D, sunlight, sun exposure, the idea of being in our homes all day. You know, I think, and in lockdown, I know a lot of people probably had that experience. Um, it was a really, really challenging time, I'm sure, but that's a really powerful story. And I think, yeah, na nature prescription, I love that. And it actually made me think of the kids because I think, you know, for anyone with children of different ages, and like I said, you know, our blended family, so we're a blended family, so we're together half the time, all, all the kids together. Um, and then when we're not together, they're with their other parents. And I think that whatever age and stage they are, being indoors all day long is not good for kids. So that's why I said about being intentional, like we're going to the park, we're going to walk to the bakery, we're going to walk here, we're going to walk there, scooters, coats on, get your football. We go outside quite a lot, but we really do go outside quite a lot. And so I think on one hand, it's like an energy thing. I feel like, you know, if your kids aren't sleeping well, if their behavior isn't great, if they're bickering in the house, like there's things I often think, you know, parents might not think of this nature prescription, but actually I think getting your kids outside, getting them climbing, yes, they get muddy, yes, it's cold, but but I personally feel like that is a game changer for kids. And even the nature, when you said about nature scenes, I was gonna ask you that because we do this in our house quite a lot on a Sunday evening. So we might've had a busy weekend. We might've been out here, there and, and you know, screens and games and noise and loud. And that's a, that's a colorful life, a house full of kids. But actually on a Sunday evening, when you want everyone's down, you know, down regulate, let's be a bit calmer. Let's get the things ready for school. Let's start to get ready for bed. We actually put on a nature show. So we often watch, you know, a David Attenborough show together. We watch a frozen planet. We might watch a show about lions or anything nature. One, because it's age appropriate for all three of them. So it's not like the little one can't watch it or the older ones want to watch. It's, you know, it's appropriate for everyone. And also I feel like it does have that calming effect. Even on myself, I feel it too. It's like everyone's had a bath, everyone's had dinner, homework's done, and we all sit together. You know, people have got their pajamas on, wet hair, and we watch nature shows. And it's, it's something I really have, like look forward to now at the end of Sunday, I love it. Everybody does, they really enjoy it. That's a lovely ritual and it's, it's very true. In fact, I've done that a lot with my boys as well. I wouldn't say we do it every Sunday, but now I'm thinking I want to start doing it more. But when they want to step a bit later and I want them to be calm, um, I'll say, let's, uh, let's put a nature documentary on. Yeah. <laughs> it's very true. It works. It really works. I think perhaps it's also the calming voice of David Attenborough, but um, it's, it's powerful to just see natural scenes, see um, animals 
animals, see foliage, see biodiversity. Um, it brings us back to ourselves. There was a great study uh, looking at water, and they were they were sort of um, scoring well-being scores on people that were looking at an empty tank of water, um, a tank of water with some foliage and a couple of fish and a tank of water with you know full biodiversity different types of um, plants different types of of um water life and no tank and the people that didn't have the tank um obviously scored lower but what was interesting is even the well-being scores of people that were looking at an empty tank of water were higher and the well-being scores increased for the more diversity biodiversity that was added to the tank of water Wow. Okay, this is great. I love this kind of stuff because I'm obsessed with plants as well. I have like 15 plants in my house and one of the rooms that I sit in next door is literally turning into a greenhouse. So it's also nice to know that even, you know, outside is of course the best thing. But like I said, on a Sunday night at 8pm, even just sitting and watching nature, you know, reminding yourself, uh, I think is is a really great thing. You don't necessarily have to go. It would be great to be able to go on a safari. But um, yeah, for now, David Attenborough will do instead. Oh, I love this, Gemma. So we must, of course, talk about the Power Hour. This is the Power Hour podcast. It's the end of every show. I ask every single guest to share with us a little bit about their first hour of every day, what they include, what they don't include, if it's changed dramatically for any reason. So could you tell us, please, and the listeners, what does the first hour of your day typically look like? Mm, So on a typical day, I will... Do a little gratitude practice before I get out of bed, actually. Um, So there's a certain phrase that I like to repeat to myself. It's like a form of meditation. And I do it before I start the day. uh, And it really helps me to feel good about the day that's coming up, whatever's going on for me that day. Um, And it's based on my uh, Jikoden Reiki practice. Um, So it's uh, it's in Japanese, but I do that each morning. Um, And... um, then I will. Can you tell us what? It, I... Can you tell us what it is? What it means? Oh right, yes. Okay, so it's kyo dakewa ikaruna shinpai suna kan shashite kyo o hagame hitoni shinsetsuni, um, and it it basically means um, just for today, um, do not be angry, um, do not be worried, be grateful. Um, uh, do your duties fully and be kind to all living things. Very Japanese. I have a wonderful Japanese friend and I'm, it sounded like something she would say. <laughs> oh, yeah. bless her. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that, that definitely helps me to feel like I'm in the right mindset for the day. Um, I usually make a nice cup of tea um, and I like to sit in the orangery because we've got an area that's a bit, it's a conservatory, basically, where we can sort of, I can look out in the garden, which I love. Mm. Um, and i don't tend to necessarily exercise every morning actually but sometimes i'll do a few stretches and then i'll just you know be with the kids into life sort the kids yeah. out yeah, yeah how, do all the how stuff. many children do you have um i've got two sons yeah. they're now tw- 12 and 9 okay so yeah 12 and 9 in our house too so it's uh, are mm. you at that same point Gemma, where you're asking them to be more independent and pack their own things and think for yourself but then you're just still yeah like i feel like a broken record that's my my mum life right now yeah, I mean, for the for the twelve year old, definitely because his schedule is quite challenging. He's got a, a it changes every two two weeks. It's a it's a yeah. new sort of schedule. So I'm really aiming for him to try and keep on top of that, which yeah. is is a challenge. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the reason I ask is I think as well is because of course we have our own, you know 
schedules, our own routines, our own morning and our own hour. But of course, when we share our lives and our homes with other people, it's not just about us, is it? And you know, if you've, no. got, if you've got a six month old, your power hours are very different or if you've got a you 12 yes. year old. So yeah, that's why I ask because often I think people will ask me that and, and other people they'll say, well, if you have kids, what do you do? You know? And I think it's interesting to hear that actually, yes, it's, you know, we have children, we have different commitments, we have different schedules, but it's still important, as you said, to have something that you do, which is for you before you then like you said you do these things first and then it's into kids mum life work life being available being you know for everybody else um and I think I hope that a lot of people will hear that and remind us themselves to say do something for yourself first if it's not a whole hour just five minutes yeah I mean I wouldn't say it's an hour for me and that's why I so admire your power hour work because you know I think you've been able to actually achieve what a lot of people think is not possible and that is to Uh, implement the power hour with a family of three kids so you know I'm very very impressed oh thank you sometimes it gets hijacked I'm not gonna lie sometimes I (laughs) used to be solitude now sometimes I have people that join me for the power hour yeah um, but uh, that's a good thing though isn't it just for them to see you and be part of it that's wonderful yeah well thank you so much for joining I really appreciate it I hope that people will of course either download the book uh, go out and purchase the book you can order online you can is it on audible uh, so no, the book is not on Audible. Okay. It's on Kin. It's on Kindle. It's, on Kindle. it's in hardback. You can go, you know, Waterstones, Debbie Smiths, Amazon, Hive, independent bookshops, anywhere you fancy. Get well, stay well. Get well, stay well. Thank you so much, Dr. Gemma, and thank you everyone for tuning in. As always, I'll be back next week with another episode. See you.